Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, otherwise known as CTE, it's a major topic when talking about the spectrum of things related to brain injury in sports. From its first descriptions in 1928 by Dr. Harrison Martland when coining the term punch drunk syndrome, to its portrayal in the movie Concussion with Will Smith starring as pathologist Dr. Bennett Amalu, many now have concerns about the effect of repetitive head trauma in our athletes. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by a former WWE wrestler, now researcher, who has taken a lead role in raising awareness of CTE. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Chris Nowinski, a former Harvard football player who followed college with a career in professional wrestling in the WWE, which was ended due to a concussion. Chris is the co-founder and CEO of the nonprofit Concussion Legacy Foundation. He has also co-founded the Boston University CTE Center and Veterans Affair, Boston University, and Concussion Legacy Foundation Brain Bank, where he leads outreach, recruitment, and education programs. Chris earned his PhD in behavioral neuroscience from Boston University School of Medicine and has authored over 30 scientific publications on concussions and CTE. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks for having me, Mark. So let's set the table for our listeners a little bit. You and I haven't always seen eye to eye on things, and that's okay. We have had some differing opinions on some things, but I think we do have a mutual respect for each of our works in the world of concussion. Years back, we had a lengthy and spirited Twitter debate. I remember you commented afterwards, you had sent me a direct message saying that was the longest Twitter debate you probably had ever had. Um, <laughs> and longest I will ever have. It's huh? good. And I, I agree. My lesson. I've, I've learned too that I just, I stop. Uh, at the time, I wasn't so good with that, but I've, I've learned my lesson and my wife has been very good about helping me with that too. So, <laughs> but I, th- I think what I've appreciated most is we've been able to push back each other a little bit. And I always felt it's, again, it's been done with respect for each other and we're not intending to put each other down here. I'm hoping today we can feel that we both can push each other a little bit, and I think we'll have a great discussion today about CT and just the state of sports when it comes to concussions. To start off with, I'd love our listeners to get to know you a little bit more. I've read Head Games, your book from 2007, talking about your story about football's concussion crisis, but others may have not. Tell our listeners a little bit about your journey in sports and how that morphed into your current position and passion about researching CTE. Well, first of all, let me say thanks for reading the book. So, so you're the one who read it. Uh, I I wrote that book because I had a journey that's very similar to other people. I I played contact sports my whole life, you know, soccer, K through eight, football, high school, college, and then dabbled in professional wrestling with WWE. And during that time, I never had a diagnosed concussion until I had the one that ended my career. And the one that ended my career has caused basically permanent post-concussion symptoms. We are now 18 years later, and I still have a few things that I'd I'd prefer not to have. Basically, the idea was I I got hurt in June 2003. I didn't realize and appreciate that I had a concussion, even though I had extraordinary symptoms. I just knew enough to not be honest about them with the medical team. And I kept working and wrestling for five more weeks and working out every day, even though I couldn't last more than 10 minutes in the gym before getting nauseous, because I just didn't know any better. And after five weeks, I was honest only after I developed REM behavior disorder, which has stuck with me and nearly injured myself jumping through a nightstand off of a bed because I, when I couldn't be woken from a dream that I was acting out. And long story short, eighth doctor I went to to try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again was Dr. Robert Cantu. 
And he taught me so much in that first meeting because he was the first guy to say, you know, they all asked, all the doctors I saw, how many concussions you had before this? My answer was zero. Dr. Cantu was the first guy to say, how many times were you hit in the head and you saw stars or you had double vision or you had ringing in your ears or you forgot where you were or this long, long list of, of symptoms. And I was like, well, geez, that happens all the time. That's just a normal good hit. <laughs> and, and he was like, well, no, those are concussions by another name. And I was like, wow, I've been bashing my head out there for 19 years recklessly. And I, and I can't believe I didn't know what a concussion was. And then he started talking to me about, well, if you had rested those concussions, you may not be in the situation you're in today. And uh, there might be some long-term consequences. And I was just like, what? <laughs> I'm like, like I'm a I'm a college graduate with no idea what I was doing to myself and and I would have made different decisions and that's what led to me becoming an advocate was just you know I started asking around and nobody that I played sports with knew this stuff and I dug into it more and realized the NFL was pretty actively not telling the truth about this stuff. And that's why I thought I would um, take a stab at changing the the conversation through that book, which no one read, which is why I had to start the Concussion Legacy Foundation to take everything I'd learned and actually try to change the culture. You know, I, I find it really interesting when you had made the comment when you started there that you had never been diagnosed with a concussion before. The first thing I put down, I put never diagnosed. I wrote, wrote a little note to myself here because I was going to ask you and follow up on that because I, I'm like, wow, I go, that's pretty impressive that that was your first one and that one's the one that put you out. But you, you have the exact same thing that we hear time and time again in our offices is that, you know, people don't call it that or it's how many diagnosed concussions have you had? Well, well, I've had two diagnosed ones. All right. Well, what about all those other times where you had troubles that were like concussions, but they weren't diagnosed? And people think that if it's magically it's been diagnosed by a physician, that that's the only one that counts. Right. Um, yeah, which is interesting. And and we're still having that issue today. I mean, you know that just as well as I do, that that's still a struggle for us is to get that message across that we can't just rely on the diagnosed ones. We have to be talking about all those hits that you get that may produce some of those things. And they may be short lasting. They may not produce any symptoms at all. But the ones that you're just playing through are, are the problems. No question. Yeah. And the sad thing was like, I could remember a lot of them very specifically because I had remembered like having to sit out some plays in football games, but not, you know, because I couldn't see straight or the, the sky would often go orange on me. And in, in wrestling, I actually remembered one because I looked in the mirror and remembered I had a scar on my cheek because I had elbowed so hard it split my cheek open and I didn't tag back into my match because I couldn't see. Mm-hmm. Like I just like could, I it was like, and, and my, my tag team partner for the WB fans, William Regal at the time, who was, who's a straight, a straight shooter was very mad at me for not tagging in. Cause he'd understand why I wouldn't go in, but I was like, <laughs> I just can't see. And I never told anyone about it because by the time I got to the locker room, I could see. And I was like, well, what's yeah. the point? So we glued my cheek together and I just never said anything. I'm interested in the comment that you made there too. Again, you talked about the whole sky going orange. I think that honestly, that's one of the symptoms that I think people don't talk about enough with concussions. I have heard that time and time again, where people tell us that the whole cut, like everything went one color and it could be whatever color you you can pick. It doesn't matter. There's not like one magic color that diagnoses concussion, but I've heard that time and time again. I, I don't ever, ever see that talked about in textbooks or in articles about the whole color change. We talk about visual changes, but that I just don't see enough, but, but it's something I hear all the time. No, that's, you know, that's a very good point, right? That isn't on the lists and it's it's not. it should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of things that probably we could add to the list too, but it's just how do we make it so it's not a 50 symptom list of that we're asking about, right? It's right. There's, there's only so much that people are going to be able to tolerate asking or being asked 
or filling out on a forms. But yeah, it's important that we we ask about all of those things. And, and that's where the details uh, come in when we're asking about those visual changes for sure. Let's tackle some CTE because that's kind of why we're here. Your group has done a lot of work in the area. We can touch base on a few of the studies that have come out of the Boston group, and I'd love you to lend your insight to the, some of those. And they've always received a lot of media attention. Let's start off with, I'm curious about the brain bank and where things stand now and where are we at with the number of brains that have been donated and other commitments that may be out there for future donations. We actually just crossed over a thousand brains donated. We are now operating at 200 brains a year, which so basically more than half of our brain bank has come in the last three years. It's pretty extraordinary that we've been able to keep up. You know, thank God for Anne McKee and her amazing ability to write impactful papers and get the grants to keep it all going. But we're also now sharing brain tissue with other brain banks to do the work. There's over a thousand in, interestingly, 700 are football players. We're actually going to put out a report later on this month, sort of giving some of that demographic information for who's in and, and where this is all going. And then we have, you know, we have about 8,000 people that have pledged. We get of the 200 that came in last year, 14 had previously pledged and 186 were new. Yeah, we'll continue to go at this pace, if not more going forward, because, you know, brain donation, you know, and this is part of our goal has been normalized for athletes in this country. And the other question I would have on that is how many of those are women from sports outside of that? Any, any yet? 33. Okay. All right. <laughs> the first reason is because you know, there are very few playing tackle football and that's where the most of them come from. But the other reason I think is title nine. We don't have a lot of older contact sport playing women. We also, from my calls with families, cause I'm still doing a lot of the outreach when we call people, people are more comfortable with giving dad's brain and they're more protective of their mothers. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that. We'll talk more about some of the the specific study, the the JAMA article that got a lot of attention. You know, one of the things that when we talk about collecting that data and we look back, and I think we're probably, you get some of the pushback, I'm sure you get some of the pushback from the medical community is when we're looking at brains and we're documenting what's happening and what you guys are seeing. And then the symptoms that people may have experienced when they're alive is, is that that recall bias, obviously, and you're getting someone else doing that. Are you guys collecting now any prospective data on people that are donating brains or, or have pledged, I should say, to donate brains and getting them involved in anything that we can follow longitudinally that we can glean some of information from that? Yes. At the beginning, it was through the legend study, which was annual online tests and phone calls. And then we recently shut that down because we're transitioning to a much larger platform. And so we recently got a good score on a grant. So hopefully that'll be happening shortly is that basically everybody who's pledged to donate their brain will also become a part of this longitudinal registry that'll be evaluated each year. And, and so there's some big plans around that. So we're excited for that. Oh, good. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's interesting. And I, and I think it's, it's valuable information. Obviously we're not, well, at least we hope we don't have a lot of good information really soon. Cause that means unfortunately those people that have pledged to pass, but I, I think, you know, if we keep up this stuff down the road, that's, that's going to lend even more information to expand our knowledge on this area. No question about that. You know, I think the biggest thing that most of us who are practicing clinical medicine on living patients with a concussion or history of concussion, it's the impression of the certainty that of the correlation of CTE findings and then the symptoms associated with the various stages of CTE. I referenced the 2013 article that was in Brain that correlated the symptoms with the staging found on autopsy. And then there was a JAMA article after that that received the tremendous amount of attention talking about the high prevalence of CTE, the 99%, I believe it was, of the former football players who group has found 
CTE in on the brains that were donated. And the vast majority of those that had the positive findings were those that had played in college and the pros in much smaller numbers, fortunately, but still there in some of those that had played high school and unfortunately pre-high school. I'm curious as the process of determining how you guys work out getting these symptoms that the players have had from the relatives and family members on these former football players and how much can we hang our hat on that data itself? You know, and this again, it's the only way to get fast information because as you stated earlier, we want longitudinal information. We have to wait for people to die and we get no insight into their earlier life and their midlife because most people who are going to die soon are older. What we use is we use a lot of the scales that are used in, in living patients. The list actually that we get, we ask the family informants and it's, it's uh, you know, spouses, children, you know, so whoever knew the people best. And we rate the informants and the quality and how long they knew them and all that. Then we go through the geriatric depression scale, the Beck anxiety inventory, the neuropsychiatric inventory questionnaire, behavior rating inventory of executive function, apathy evaluation scale, cognitive difficulty scale, functional activities questionnaire, Brown Goodwin aggression scale, and Barrett impulsiveness scale. And so all of these scales are used in this way all the time. And so we do have some confidence, although we recognize that, again, everybody's perspective on people is limited. Some confidence, you know, that we're getting decent data. And then the, the but the, the bigger question then is, is it correlated to the pathology? And so what we're doing is, uh, you know, we're reporting what the families give us and trying to tease out, you know, are some of these symptoms caused by the specific CT pathology, and we're talking tau, or are we talking about, we've had some publications recently saying, well, there's actually a heck of a lot more going on inside the brain, whether or not it's the majority that also have TDP-43 issues, the people who have white matter rarefaction, uh, all these other good percentage of the older folks, especially those with motor problems, have Lewy bodies. We're trying to sort of tease out what's, you know, what is causing these symptoms. And, and sometimes people who have these symptoms, you know, have no pathology. But we're trying to appreciate, really piece that all together. And a lot of it, you know, part of the reason we put the BUCT Center where we did is because it's also one of the 30 federally funded uh, our Alzheimer's disease research centers. So we're basically using the Alzheimer's model to try to understand CT and building off their decades of learnings. And I think that that's that's the problem. And I, I you know, I know I've personally pushed back on you on some of this stuff too. Is is how do we correlate the findings on CTE and how do we know for sure that that correlates with what those people were having problems with while they were living and you know, I, I think that's always an issue. I, I actually, you know, as you were going through all the inventories that you were talking about that you looked at, you know, one of the things that just kind of popped into my head is we we know, especially as you and I both as being males and mental health being something that's oftentimes pushed under the rug for males and particularly, I'm sure, male athletes. I'm curious, you know, a lot of that stuff, I, I wonder how much of that's even under-recognized by the family members themselves, just because so many males try and hide those things. I mean, obviously, when it becomes much more prevalent, the anger issues and things like that, then it's going to be outwardly visible. But, you know, the underlying depression or things like that, I, I mean, that may be stuff that we're truly under-recognizing in the big picture of things. Yeah, you know, it would depend on who we're interviewing. If it's somebody who lived with the person for a long time, you know, it's really hard to to hide depression and anxiety and, and cognitive difficulties. So when you have a, a long-term spouse, you often really get the most insight. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. children, but children don't live with their parents. They often don't know. Yeah. They really don't. Yeah. I think the other part that always lends us pause is that when we talk about something like a pathological correlate, you know, we we know for sure in the sports medicine world, and you probably as an athlete, 
you know, there's been plenty of studies that are shown out there where we have MRI findings of structural abnormalities and they don't produce any pain or they don't produce any symptoms. And there's, you know, we can do that for any joint or body part in the body. No question about that. So then again, that that's where the part comes in as far as how do we correlate those two. And that's, that's again, that's where I personally struggle a little bit as far as trying to, to put those two together. I mean, I have no question that CTE, no question it exists. It's the harder part for me is trying to figure out how do we tease those two together. And I, I, I don't know. You guys are working on that more obviously than I ever would. So I'm interested just kind of where you guys are going with that as far as kind of teasing that out further. Yeah, no, I feel your pain. And and what's most interesting to me, having sort of started really focused on concussions and talking to concussion and brain injury experts, and then digging into the CT work is that they're very different trainings. The difference between brain injury and neurodegenerative disease are, are sort of different philosophies and different mm-hmm. ways of approaching the problem. And so usually when, when we have these discussions, it's rarely the neurodegenerative disease people who are complaining about the unknowns because there's so many unknowns with all the neurogenic diseases. The things we think we know with confidence, we don't always know with confidence. Like, you know, the average person thinks that when you go to the doctor and they tell you you, your your parent has Alzheimer's, that they're certain. (laughs) And they don't realize, you know, when people say, we can't diagnose CT till you're dead. Well, you also can't diagnose Alzheimer's till you're dead. Mm -hmm. You know, but we have, you know, fifth, you know, major iteration of a, a clinical diagnostic criteria that we can use that we know gets us right about 80% of the time. Yeah. If that. So one of those things that, you know, if you start with the question of, okay, the, a lot of these people have dementia, something has to cause dementia, mm-hmm. right? A lot of it's neurodegenerative disease. There can be vitamin deficiencies. There can be, uh, you know, other things, traumatic brain injury, strokes, those that we, we now have hundreds of the people who had CT and CT only in their brain and none of the other problems. And when they have stage four, the most advanced pathological level that's that's been put forward by Dr. Ann McKee in the scaling system, over 90% of the time they have dementia. And that's an extraordinary correlation. So I don't think anyone questions that end-stage CTE is causing dementia and mm-hmm. causing cognitive problems. And so the, the, the debate becomes... When did those cognitive problems really start becoming a problem and what else came with it? And part of the debate is around psychiatric symptoms. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of different ways to look at that too. And I guess I'm sort of curious if you want to start to get into that, that area now. Oh yeah. No, I'd love, I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit as far as the psychiatric symptoms. Yeah. And what you guys are seeing. Because that's been a, that's been a big area of debate. Because on the one hand, you know, we've reported that especially our young cases when they die young, 20s, 30s, 40s. It's before the onset of significant cognitive problems. They, they don't have dementia that early, although we, are seeing, we do see people dying of dementia in their 50s, which is extraordinary in itself with CT. It's sort of mild cognitive problems, plus we're seeing mood disorders, major depression issues, behavioral problems. And the question is, is it CTE that's causing that? Is it some other aspect of all the concussions they took? Is it some other aspect of the pathologies that come with repetitive brain trauma? I think the answer is it's, it's sort of different for everybody. And, I, and there is a long history of understanding that psychiatric disorders do appear in early stage similar diseases and then disappear in end stage diseases. The, the best example, there's a wonderful graphic by Leah Grinberg and her team at UCSF looking at the pathology of the locus ruleus and the brainstem in all Alzheimer's disease patients by Brock stage, which is the staging system for Alzheimer's disease, and their symptoms. And what they found is that if you just looked at end-stage Alzheimer's disease, 
at the end stage when they had dementia, there is no increased depression, anxiety, sleep disorders, appetite disorders, and agitation. That's not there. And it's not there before they get Alzheimer's pathology. But surprisingly, it does show up in early stage, stage one, two, three, and four. Actually, just actually just one and two out of those six. Most of them, there you have elevated depression, elevated anxiety, elevated sleep disturbances, and elevated appetite dysfunction in early stage Alzheimer's. That eventually goes away. And that to me, and I, I always show this paper to people who say that the psychiatric symptoms aren't real to say, you know, no, actually they, they are. They, it just depends on when you look. Mm-hmm. And so when I see work like that, which is very impressive work involving very cutting edge imaging of you know, tau pathology in a very specific area of the brain that is involved in, a lot, in regulating a lot of these things, you realize that it's, prob- it's, it's, only, it's certainly the same case for CT because, interestingly, the locus is also the most involved area of the brain in early stage CT with tau pathology besides the frontal lobe. I think in a lot of these cases, it is CTE pathology driving psychiatric symptoms. And that's why that is the chief complaint of the people who are dying and being diagnosed with CT in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And going along that, since we were talking about the psychiatric part of things, you know, when the JAMA study came out, I, I was surprised as I, as I kind of filtered through the data and the graphs and, and everything that was presented there, there was a much higher rate of suicide in the mild CTE group versus the severe CTE group. And I commented about this a little bit on Twitter too. In the study, suicide was the cause of death in 27% of those with the mild CTE and 5% of those with severe CTE. But there's been a lot of narrative about suicide and CTE, as I'm sure you're aware, that sometimes people kind of put those two things together, that if you have CTE, that's going to lead to suicide. And it seems a little backwards with what you found in this group of former football players. But what do you think about this finding? Like, what were you guys kind of, as you're processing this and you're seeing this finding, what are you guys talking about? The first thing is we're reporting it, right? We're reporting how they're coming in and we're trying to understand why. And part of the reason we recognize that a brain bank like ours is probably going to have an elevated suicide brain donation because people want answers when they lose a loved one who took their life. Mm-hmm. And they maybe they're hopeful that something in the brain will tell them maybe something was wrong with them. And that's why they made the decision. There's already that awareness. And then there's the, the part of the problem is a lot of the early cases of CTE. And, and I bring this up too, when people say, well, it's because people are talking about the association that people are killing themselves. The early CT cases before there was any national discussion or awareness of CT were mostly suicides. So there's uh, Terry Long, who's a second NFL player, killed himself in his 40s. And then Andre Waters, the first brain I procured, killed himself in his mid 40s. And then Justin Strelzik was the next case diagnosed. He died before them, but brain was kept, who you know was hearing voices and leading police on a you know, car chase where he died, which was, you know, again, bizarre behavior. And then the, the next case I got was a guy I actually knew for five years, Chris Benoit, who wrestled in WWE, who I thought the world of when I met him and later found out he really struggled in the last year of his life. And he actually confided in me his concerns about concussions before he, he actually killed his wife and child and himself. And so that like out of the gate, we're talking about suicide is, is, is driving the deaths of these first few people that were diagnosed. That might have set an expectation that they're related. But then you also have to look at cause of death in the data. So so part of the reason why you would have a much higher suicide rate in early stage versus late stage 
is that because suicide is how people are dying when they're young, because they're not dying of heart disease, they're not dying of cancer as much, they're not dying of Alzheimer's disease, they're not dying of cerebral vascular, they're not dying of diabetes, right? So they, so suicide actually in age 15 to 34 is the number two cause of death. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what people appreciate is that mild and severe CT is first associated by age. You know, you start at stage one, you progress stage four, average average severe CT cases in their 60s or 70s, while the average early stage is in their 20s or 30s. Just cause of death by age would answer this question. And then the question is, well, what can you actually interpret from it? Suicide is fewer than 2% of deaths of all people in the world, right? So to have 5% even in severe cases might give a hint that maybe there is some association. And then there's the, the, the psychiatric symptoms I referenced earlier that come with early stage neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's. Maybe there could be a relationship there that early stage is causing neuropsychiatric symptoms that are that you know like depression and other things that might make you more likely to die by suicide. So when I talk to suicide experts about this, and I you know I was just on a call before this with the head of the NFL Lifeline, you know the biggest you mm-hmm. know, big suicide prevention organization, they believe that CTE would absolutely increase your risk of suicide. But then you have to look at the data. The other side of that argument is, well, if you look at epidemiological data, NFL players have a lower risk of suicide than the population. And they found the same thing in professional soccer players in Scotland. And the question there is, first question is, are regular people the right comparison group for NFL or professional soccer players? And the simple answer is no, right? Harvard's moved away from using regular people as comparators for their NFL study. They're using Major League Baseball players. Because there's so many differences in terms of socioeconomic status, so many differences in terms of education. There's the underreporting of suicide that might come from when you're famous and you have friendly medical examiners. So there's there's a, the epidemiology against the regular population is is, is is sort of absolutely not the way to answer this question. <laughs> I guess my gut would say not being a suicide expert, but being part of these conversations, I think the experts think there is a relationship. And the other thing to consider is that there is a known relationship between a single concussion and suicide, right? There is a, there is a, a you know, about doubles the risk when you look at big population data. All of these people with CT have had concussions, right? Whether they were diagnosed or not, You've, you probably have to be hitting that thousands of times to get it. You know, maybe we're seeing an effect of the multiple concussions they suffered. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe it's not the pathology, although I think it is. But this is a very at-risk group based on other things that we know. And then when you talk about theories as to why a single concussion increases your risk of suicide, there's sort of two thoughts. One is it changes the way your brain functions so that it makes suicide seem like a better idea. And the other one is that it changes your life circumstances. And if you look at a lot of these CT suicides, we're talking about people who think about some of the more famous cases, like Dave Duerson, who was an NFL player for the Chicago Bears, somebody I met growing up when I won an award for my football play in high school. He was super successful after the NFL, multimillionaire in, in food distribution and on the board of trustees at Notre Dame. And at 45, he physically assaulted his wife in public, which started the downward spiral of his professional career. He was rough on his children. And all this stuff was personality changes in his 40s. And he started making bad business decisions that made him bankrupt. So you're talking about a guy who his cognitive problems and his emotional regulation issues led to him being disenfranchised from his family 
and bankrupt. And so the effects to your life are significant. And so you wonder what, what he was thinking about when he took his life. No one can presume to know, but his life was very different than it was before. And it was likely related to a stage three CTE. Yeah. You know, and I think if I'm correct and, and I haven't, I have to go back, I haven't looked at this article recently, but I think you're referencing a little bit about the the increased risk of suicide. I think there's been some studies that show it like in the first year after concussion, that there is an increased risk of suicidality in people who have sustained concussion. If, if, if am I thinking, am I thinking correct? There, there are studies that say that, but there are also studies that, that look at ten years out, and there are studies sure. that a lifetime. Yeah, and in the reason why I'm kind of commenting on that is just you know going from my clinical experience and what we see often, and we talk about this a lot when we're talking to primary care doctors and what, as far as when you're looking at someone with a concussion, you know, we rely on the symptom checklist for for patients. And going through those symptom checklists. And one of the things that we see time and time again is in, especially in the teenagers who have had more prolonged symptoms uh, from their concussion, is if you if you follow the trends when you look at a lot of these kids, a lot of them, some of their physical symptoms start to improve early on in the course. And the, but they may have not a lot of the mental health symptoms that we see down at the bottom of our typical checklist. And then as time goes on, we start to see those elevate. You know, the question always comes out there: Well, what's the chicken and what's the egg? Was it the concussion that caused those problems, or is it because they've had they felt crummy for such a long period of time? And sometimes, depending on the messages they may get from a provider or how they're talked about managing their their concussion, are, are we seeing the elevation of the mental health problems because of they have despair because they don't feel like they're ever going to get better or things. It, it's an interesting kind of dialogue to have there because I, I see that trend and I talk about it all the time when I give talks about concussion is you can't just rely on looking at a concussion symptom score and just look at the score and say, are they improving or not? You got to look at the trends of what's happening over time with these individuals because we clearly see a lot of that morphing where kids become a lot more of the anxious, depressed kids that month later after their their injury, if they're, if they're still having symptoms at that point. Yeah, no, that makes sense. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Christopher Nowinski on CTE. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From the Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising could have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Welcome back to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We are continuing our discussion with Dr. Christopher Nowinski about all things head injuries. 
So let's keep talking about kids in general again, since obviously we're a pediatric podcast, but it's good to talk about this from all stages of life. Your group's been a vocal advocate for no tackle football before 14. So tell our listeners a little bit about your guys' reasoning behind choosing the age of 14 as an example. A lot of the studies we see out there that look at age of first exposure to football, they use the age of 12. And then we don't really see that age of 14 as kind of the cutoff. You guys chose 14. I'm assuming that's it's the high school thing. But what has your group found? And and with what you guys have found, you know, when you talk about 99% of the brains that you guys have found in your study, why not be vocal about not having football at all? Why take the stance of it's okay after 14? What we've seen, you referenced that 99%. So that was a 2017 study in JAMA where we reported all of our football CT experience. And so we had 200 and some brains donated football players and the vast majority had CT in it. And when you broke them down by experience level, it was 99% of our 111 NFL players. It was about 80% of our college players. And it was about a quarter of our high school players. And we've then now that that number of brains is much higher. And we published last year that there's a relationship between years of play and CT risk. And it looks very similar to the relationship between years of smoking and lung cancer risk, right? It's a dose response relationship. You know, it's probably somewhere between, you know, we, we published it was about 30%. It may not be that high, but it's in that range of it's definitely double digits each year, your odds increase. And so if that's the answer, and if you want to prevent CT, you do the same thing you did with smoking as you start at a higher age. We live in a country right now where there's over a million kids before age 12 playing tackle football. And there's another million playing in high school. And there's many, many fewer playing after age 18. Sure. If we want to prevent CT cases, you're talking about, can you cut a few years off of people's careers? And you would actually prevent a huge percentage of CT cases. So we said, let's do what we can to aggressively try to prevent CT by changing how you play. And so the, the reason, yeah, 14 is, it, it, it is be primarily or partially because of the, the changes that come with high school. So actually, I'm, I'm, I'm staring at an infographic we made that has about 10 different categories. <laughs> um, yeah. Why tackle football is worse for you than it, as a youth and in high school, and then we'll address this high school safe. It's all about biomechanics. You know, a kid's body is not designed to take hits to the head. Right. When you're five years old, your your head to body ratio is, your, your head is basically four times larger compared to your body than it will be at 14, right? Like you just look at the kids sitting across the room if you're listening to this, they got a, your kid has a giant head. I literally, I, I experienced this last night with my two and a half year old daughter wearing a headband that she made her aunt wear, my sister-in-law. And and they swapped them and they both fit. <laughs> and she goes, oh, my God, Kenzie's head is as big as mine. And I'm like, it kind of is. So when you think about the trauma, we say we, we think kids at five years old, when they're running into each other, they don't hit that hard. But in reality, when you're taking a giant head and driving it into another giant head, the brain moves quite quickly and far. And the, the, the energy that goes in the brain is actually very similar to what happens when you're an adult. So specifically football is very dangerous for kids because they're human bobbleheads. Yeah, and then exactly. we're adding a four pound weight to their head when they're into these collisions. That four pound weight might be 10% of the weight of a 40 pound child. So if you think about, again, the physics of this, think about every 300 pound NFL lineman wearing a 30 pound helmet. And think what would happen to them if they were running around hitting each other with that. Like it's a nightmare scenario. 
right? So just that equation makes it, you realize that kids are vulnerable. And then kids' thinner, weaker necks causes rapid head movement. And then the other thing is about football play, which I'm a big believer in as someone who didn't, thank God, play till high school, is that the stronger you are determines how you play and how many head impacts you're involved with. As a lineman, you know, in high school, I was, I had a very sad bench press and I couldn't push people off me with my arms. So I had to use my head to ram them because that got my whole body involved. And when I was in college, I was strong enough that I could, if I wanted to, which I didn't, I could have avoided using my head because I could push people. And think about how insane it is to ask a child to play tackle football before you'll even let them into a weight room, right? USA football themselves doesn't recommend you lift weights till you're 13. So it's, I think it's cruel to ask a a child who can't build up her body strength to try to push people around without using their head because they'll have to use their head. And then, okay, so that's that's the biomechanics. <laughs> yeah. And because you ask, I'll go through the whole thing. Sure. Then we talk about resources and protections, right? So if you're going to play, high schools have paid, trained, and experienced coaches for the most part. Only 45% of youth football coaches have any training in football, right? These are a lot of them, people off the street who might have played or might not have played. They're just a dad, but they don't they, they, who knows how they're teaching football because they have not, they have no formal training in how to teach football. So it could be very dangerous. There's no athletic trainers at the youth level. If, if, I mean, I'll say super rare, there's got to be some, but there's yeah, almost there's none. But at, at high schools, you know, 70% of public high schools or so have access to an athletic trainer. That medical advocate is so critical for not just concussion diagnosis and management, but also sort of a set of eyes on the drills and the practices employed. You need that medical advocate. Most states now have, and governing bodies have contact limits. New Jersey's down to 15 minutes of hitting per week, but most youth football programs don't have contact limits. And in fact, there's some youth football programs that play three seasons a year if with the same kids, 30 games a year. And they play jamborees. They play four or five games in a single weekend. Whereas in high school, it's illegal to play you know, more than one game a week. Yeah, there's the question of helmets. Helmets are really designed for adults. They haven't been designed for youth they're still working on a youth standard, I believe. Uh, and then the other stuff is brain development. You know, we sort of know that your brain is, is you know, maturing into your 20s, including, you know, the growth of myelin around your axons. Your axons are the vulnerable thing when it comes to trauma. And peak myelination occurs at ages 11 and 12. So whacking your head before you have myelin to protect your axons is, a, again, a bad idea. So all of those reasons are why we say 14. And so the other part is why not say 18? Well, we do have to consider the ethics of this, right? We are, we are definitely giving children CTE when they play football. Like that's, uh, that's no longer a question. And so the question is, is, is it fair to give them CTE? And, you know, if the ethics would say probably not, they, there is no such thing as informed consent for people under 18, but I'm willing to, only have that conversation after we protect the most vulnerable kids. Sure. Right. Sure. So, yeah. so that, so we're talking 14 under and, and, and the other reality is again, if CT risk only goes up year after year, the beauty of starting at 14 is that 95% of American football players would then only play four seasons or fewer because nobody plays football as an adult for free. You're either playing in college or you're playing the pros. There's a handful of semi-pro leagues out there for those who miss it too much. But that's not a big number of people. Really, people don't play football as adults because it's too dangerous. <laughs> and yeah, if well, you're not, yeah. you, know, you and I are not willing to put on pads and go hit this weekend, 
the idea that we're asking kids to do it. So the, the, the magic of 14 is that 95% of people, they would have extraordinarily low risk for CT probably with modern changes in only four years. And then the people who would be getting CT at high rates would at least have the idea of informed consent because it would be happening with our 18 plus. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, obviously we would both be speculating on this. I am really curious with the changes that we've had with kind of just talking about and raising awareness to this and many places, and I know many coaches, especially at the high school level and under that have changed their approaches to how they approach practices and things like that. We know that there are plenty of cases out there that that's not happening the way we recommended to, but I'd be really curious if that, if we would see, if we, when we study these kids that are now in football now and have been in the last 10 years, since there's been a lot more awareness, are, are we going to see a change? And obviously we're not going to know that for time to come, but I'm really curious and I'm hopeful that some of the efforts that have been made is going to make that number that we're seeing right now even smaller. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you as far as all the things you discussed about the biomechanics and all that. And, you know, I think that one of the biggest problems is, is that, and, and this is youth sports in general. I mean, the cart's way, way out in front of the horse as far as what is the benefit of starting your sport at at three, as an example. I mean, in my town, we had a the local fitness center here was offering baseball training for three years old. And, you know, they'd show these videos of these kids where they hit the ball off the tee and there was a rocket shot. I'm like, well, yeah, that was just a lucky hit. I go watch them do it, you know, 50 other times and and watch them swing and a miss. But it's it's that constant thing is that we got to keep up with the Joneses. So we got to start younger and younger and younger, because if we don't, we're not going to be there. And that's where, you know, I think it's helpful to have some of those examples of people who have played professionally who didn't start until later of, of all sports, because, again, we're, we're, we're not seeing that message get out there enough. Well, that's, so, a, that's a really good point. And, and football specifically is a sport where there's really no skill building. Like I never considered myself a skilled person as a lineman. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it just has, it was a how big and strong and tough are you? And you don't know that until you go through puberty. Our team at the Concussion Legacy Foundation put together the all-time greatest NFL team who never played for high school. It turned out it's really just the all-time greatest NFL team. Oh, the yeah. top five NFL players all time, the consensus top five never played for high school. Jerry Rice, Jim Brown, Walter Payton, Lawrence Taylor, Tom Brady never played for high school. And we tried to make that point to parents too. Like, even if you want to, you might fall behind skating on ice hockey. You might fall behind on some of these sports, but football, you can pick up on a dime. There are people in the NFL who didn't play until their 20s. Yeah. Well, but even when you're talking about falling behind for, for skating and ice hockey, you could still be a skater and not have to do contact, right? I mean, exactly. you yeah. can develop your skating skills. You can develop yours. I mean, obviously there's a reason why we call certain positions in football skilled position players, as opposed to not, <laughs> not right. Uh, you know, the lineman, we don't Paul put them in that category. I don't know. You know, it's just brute strength. That was and, very and rude. Bigness, right? Sorry. Yeah, but no, yeah. I mean, but, but it's what it's called, right? You know, who's yeah. the skilled position players, you know, you're not getting drafted on a fantasy team as a lineman typically, unless your team does that. So if you're looking for, for sack stats, but it's not that they're not skilled. I mean, we know it. I mean, no, I know. Good golly. Yeah. I was around them for 11 seasons in the NFL watching these guys play and just the the phenomenal beasts and freaks of nature that they are physically. I mean, it's 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 amazing. So it's an interesting discussion. And and I know there's been lots of pushback from and we can even talk about this, the American Academy of Pediatric Statement on Tackling and Football. Oh, um, that, worst that, statement that, ever. Well, yeah. And <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we can have all sorts of good discussions about that, and and it's interesting when we talk about that because there's lots of things that that came out about that statement, and as far as not picking a specific age and things like that, and 
you know, I, I don't or know. Not I was anywhere close to the statements they made about checking in ice hockey or, or, or boxing for children. They're just, it was another planet. Right. Right. And again, and, and, and again, I'm not trying to defend the statement, Chris, but, but I'm also just stating the facts as far as where we had the data, you know, they've studied hockey and the effects of changing collisions in body checking. And we know that the data is there. There wasn't that great of data from football because no one's looked at it as far as does it change the rate of concussions and things like that. But yes, we, we can't discount the fact that there are the repetitive hits to the head. So no question about that. So yes, I- Well, that's a good chance to, to plug the new CDC data that was out this week. Right. Yeah, yeah. I saw it. <laughs> Which is fascinating. I, you know, God bless the CDC. They, they finally did a study where they put sensors on helmets for kids and mm-hmm. measured concussions because the youth football community was promoting this one really super terrible study out of Iowa that claimed that a flag and tackle had similar concussion rates when it was, you know, there were no medical people at these things. It was just coaches, whether or not they put into the app that they had concussions. It was, it was, you know, it was fake news if I ever heard of it. So CDC said, all right, let's do this formally. And so they put out a graphic that I got in my email this week that said the average youth tackle football player got hit in the head 378 times a year. And the average flag football player got hit in the head eight times a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least we can finally put that argument to bed that flag's dangerous relative to tackle. I, but I don't expect the American Academy to change their position on this. I think it's a little, there's, there's got to be something else going on behind the scenes. But, but I do want to circle back. Someone who's been with the AAP, there's no behind the scenes. So I, I you know. Well, it's, it's who you put in charge and why. That's the, that's the issue. Even if you put a, a football advocate in charge of the statement, you're going to get the statement that uh, you get. And that's the issue. But the other side is, uh, I want to go back to what you're saying before, before I don't, there's no need to trash the AP. They do great yeah, work. Yeah. <laughs> just have one statement I disagree with. You mentioned, are the changes that we made in, in football going to lead to better outcomes? And the answer is, I hope. But there's two things we have to, caveats you have to add to that. One is that if we, even if we cut CT rates in half, we're going to be disgusted by the CT rates we have, <laughs> right? Once we can diagnose this in living people. One of the things that came out of our study of 110 and 111 with NFL players was it was 10% of NFL players who died over the study period had CT. And that's a huge number. You shouldn't discount it. But we now get 40% of NFL players' brains who die. Mm-hmm. So when we publish that data, when that study's complete, I mean, how, you know, how will the world react if it's, it's more like that number? Yeah. I mean, that would well, be concerning. But, and, but just the other point I want to make, and I'll yield yeah, back yeah. the floor in your podcast, all of the changes that we're making in football to make it safer and have fewer hits may be offset by bigger, stronger, faster, the better training methods. So it, it still could be getting worse because these kids at every age level are in the weight room earlier. They're, they're, they're definitely, like they, we all know they're statistically bigger. We all know they're statistically faster. We all know they can deliver bigger hits. And so everything we think, you know, we're looking at the brains primarily of guys who played in the NFL at 200 pounds. We don't have as many cases of guys who were 300, 350 and could run as fast as those guys who were 200 pounds. So we also, we can't let, we we can't just focus on, it could still be getting worse. (laughs) This is all I got to say. Sure. You know, a huge concern I've had these days, and I've, I've mentioned this to you personally, because my, my concern is the narrative around concussions so linked to CTE, where, 
social media you see these days, there's a player that gets a concussion in a football and obviously the video is on there right away. I know you post a lot of videos criticizing, of course, of what happened and, and, and with things from various diagnoses or what have you. And I only uh, only criticize protocols. I don't criticize yeah. technically diagnoses. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. So, but in that whole kind of spectrum there, if you look at the comments after that, you know, most people of the general public these days, they're, they, the first thing you see a comment, someone will just post CTE, CTE, CTE. So it's there. They're kind of like linked together, right? So patients in my office who have kids who play a low risk sport for brain injury, they sustained a single concussion. And now the parent comes in and their biggest concern is not necessarily their kid's concussion and how they're going to get better, but my kid's now doomed to have CTE. And again, we're talking lower risk sports and we're not talking football. But on the other hand, I've been also seeing what seems like this lull, this general concern that over concussion compared to what we saw before. It's I'm, I'm seeing, I've called this personally just concussion fatigue in a way. Because we're, we're nearing in some states now, we've passed a decade mark for some states with the concussion legislation. And I think many places are just going through the motions now with the education part of concussion. It's amazing how many people still come in the office and they have no clue of the signs and symptoms of concussion. Yes, that's, that's a mandatory part of getting that. I think it's just a lot of families now are just signing the forms for their pre-participation physicals and for their kids when they submit it to the school. It just, it's amazing. And I'm curious what you're hearing or what your feelings about that may be just as far as, are we getting burnt out as a society about the talk about concussions and CTE? Yeah, that's a great observation. And, you know, I think one of the more interesting places where there's data is where there's been state laws where the schools have to report their concussion numbers, that schools are slowing down reporting their concussion numbers. There's fewer schools reporting them now than there were before. Like schools aren't tracking them. You're right that it was concussion was the hot issue, got all those laws passed. And the concussion discussion hasn't really evolved in a big way since then. And it's and it's not going to because it's such a complex discussion. You know, we're not we're still lacking objective diagnostics, we're still lacking biomarkers, can't visualize it. It's it's hard. I agree there's a bit of concussion fatigue, and you're right that as as much as we think society should be educated on this, you know, whether it's our helpline or whether it's our consulting with schools, you know, you still find people who who don't understand what's going on. The problem is we have to do this. We have to be vigilant all the time because there's a new crop of kids every year, you know, aging into contact sports or aging into you know this risky behaviors need to learn new. And 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 it is it is the the gap that the biggest gap that exists is educating kids. Yeah, you know, the idea that you hand a kid a one pager, he reads it, they they sign it, and they hand it back, and they don't even keep it, <laughs> so mm-hmm. they can re, you know learn and revisit these signs and symptoms is 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 terrible. Coaches have to do the CDC's online training in most states, but but athletes don't. They get whatever's given to them. And, and there's still a lot of coaches who choose not to educate their kids on concussions and aren't aggressive about it. Sure. So we still have problems there. And then the other problem of, of the tie of concussions and CT is uh, it is hard. I mean, part part of it stems from when we began the work, we, we honestly did think there was more of an association between concussions than the repetitive brain trauma that we now talk about today. So the, the initial narrative tied the two things closer together everywhere. Uh, but it was an honest sort of thing. And and frankly, you know, because of the lack of diagnosing concussions, there probably is still some relationship in contact sports among those who have taken thousands of hits that those who've had more concussions may be worse off, but, but we don't know. Because it's really hard to study because our diagnosis rates are so bad. And then you're right. The, the other, the, the the biggest media event 
of all that drew attention to the issue was a movie about CT called Concussion. Like, if mm-hmm. that's not designed to confuse people, I don't know what it is. Sure, sure. So I, under, I understand why people are confused, and it's, and it's, it's a shame. I mean, the good news is that, that parents are showing up to, and kids are showing up to your office with concern and then can have that conversation with an expert clinician who can tell them, no, actually, your child is not in the sport where we worry about CT, and hopefully they believe you. But the other part of it is the people who are exposing their kids to CT don't often care enough. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, and those are conversations that we generally don't happen. You know, I, I thought one of the more fascinating studies done and probably almost a decade ago now was a survey of pediatricians of would you let your child play tackle football? And the vast majority would not. Mm-hmm. But fewer of them were willing to counsel their patients to not play tackle football. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, that I mean, actually, that why is that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's one to you. I'm going to throw it back to you. Pedi- I don't know. You know I, you know, I, I, I don't know why that, that is there as far as why there's a discrepancy between the two of personally, you wouldn't, but, well, but they otherwise. probably don't think there's enough data to tell people how to live their lives. Although that was a long time ago, maybe there is today. Yeah. It'd be interesting if they repeated that study now and see if there's a different approach to that or a different feeling about that. No question. You know, I, I almost, I almost put it in terms of, I, you know, you guys have used smoking as kind of a, an, a, a, a correlate with the concussions and CTE and smoking and lung cancer. I almost wonder if we're educating the wrong way. And, you know, we know that when we tell people you smoke, you're going to get lung cancer, that that message doesn't really sink home to people. And especially to a kid, like if you tell a kid, oh, you're going to get lung cancer, they don't care when they're a teenager because they're just doing it for, we could do that for any sort of drug or what have you. But when you start talking about stuff that actually hits them personally, like, oh, well, it, you know, it makes your, it makes you taste not as good. Or, you know, if you're going to kiss someone, yeah, it's like teeth. kissing an ashtray, yeah. you get an ashtray, you know, stuff that actually hits home to them that they actually have concern about. And I wonder if we're just, if we're approaching our CT or concussion and I guess CTE education wrong with kids because we're saying, well, you get concussions and repetitive head injuries, you're going to get CTE. Well, maybe we need to put something more in the terms of what does that mean for the here and now for you? Because I mean, we both can be honest. As teenagers, neither of us, I'm sure, were worried about and cared about what we were going to be life at our ages now and what we were doing in our lives. And I can guarantee you in my office, that's the same thing. No, no one, None of the teenagers I see are going to care about what their life is like 20 or 30 years from now, right? So I don't know if we just need to be changing the message and changing a way of how we approach this to make it sink in a little bit. Well, let me ask you this. Could you name for me a CT education program aimed at children? Uh, no. Yeah, that, I don't think one exists. Yeah. I think all CT education has been pointed at parents and coaches. Parents to make better choices and to be better advocates and coaches to change their practices and the, mm-hmm. and the governing bodies to change their rules. Because I think I think we all recognize that a 10-year-old can't possibly understand that hitting their head today over and over again when it doesn't cause pain, acute pain, could destroy their lives 50 years down the road. I, I think that's just widely accepted. So I, we, we have not created a CT education program for kids because it's not the kind of thing you should be putting in a kid's head necessarily. Right. <laughs> People can't understand it. I mean, adults, you know, doctors, some doctors don't seem to understand CT. I don't expect the child to. And I'm not yeah. talking about necessarily, and I guess I, I probably misspoke as far as where I'm saying that we need to focus our education is just, I think it's, again, kind of going on my kind of premise that I was talking about before as I'm seeing this concussion fatigue. And I'm almost seeing now in my office what I saw 10 years ago, where it just seemed like, yeah, you know, yeah, it's a concussion, you know, no, no big deal. We don't have to worry about it. It's the ding, it's the bell rung. 
kind of thing. And I'm, I'm getting lots more of those comments again. And, and I'm almost looking at it in terms of, I have to look at it from terms of how do we prevent the concussion, the repetitive hits to the head, and how do we get that message home rather than necessarily putting it in terms of absolutes for the CTE. And again, I'm not talking about the preteen. I'm talking about the teenagers where that's probably where that message is going to sink home a little bit well, better. Yeah. I'm actually surprised to hear this perspective. I am glad to hear this perspective because when I go to conferences or when I listen to other leaders in the field like you, I feel like the the biggest message I hear is stop telling kids they're gonna they're gonna do poorly because that makes them do poorly. And this nocebo effect and all this stuff that is literally making the rounds at all the conferences. When parents say, well it's just a ding, you know, it's no big deal. They're gonna they're all they're you know, 90% of kids get better in a few weeks, blah, blah, blah. Like I thought that I literally thought that's what the medical field is trying to tell doctors to say. <laughs> No, I mean, well, I can't speak for everybody. I mean, I know personally, I've changed my approach of how I talk about things with patients. You know, it was when I started practice, you know, 16 years ago, just out of fellowship, you know, a lot of my discussions with concussion was was talking about, well, we need to do what we need to do because we're trying to prevent second impact syndrome. So Mm -hmm. that was, that was the big thing. So these are why we have to do these things is because we don't want you to get second impact syndrome. And I'm, I'm not talking about the nocebo fact, but if I tell someone that if they come in with a concussion and I don't expect you to recover and this is going to take you forever to get better, well, I know what's going to happen to most of those patients. I, I, I've seen it. I've seen it clinically happen. But if I put things of, for their recovery and what I expect to happen with them in the short term, okay, I'm not talking about the long term, in the short term, I do see that there is hope. And I've had plenty of patients tell me that, hey, you know, we've gotten all these messages that this isn't going to get better. We just need to wait this out. But there's there's things that we can do to help that person and get them better and make their symptoms improve. And, and we know that those things are out there now. So I think it's it's that kind of messaging. I don't I don't put it in terms of, oh, well, everything's rosy and you're you're never at risk for long-term potential brain damage. I have that discussion. I have that discussion with kids that are coming into my office that are their families are having playing tackle football at nine and ten. And I ask them, well, why? So so what is the ultimate goal there of them playing tackle football at that age? And I, I do actually recommend to them that they don't in my office. So that that's me personally. But again, I know that's not universal that that happens, no question. But but I think it's 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 how we approach talking to the patient when rehab. If, if it's all doom and gloom, uh, as far as your recovery from that particular injury at the time, and again, I'm not talking about the long term implications. Then I do find that that does kind of make things more of a problem for the patients that we see, especially the teenagers. They're very impressionable about stuff. Mm-hmm. So whether that's wrong or right, I don't know. But when I've had that approach to patients, parents have appreciated the fact that we are giving them some hope that at least from their concussion injury, that their symptoms are going to get better as opposed to a message. We're just going to wait this out and hope for the best kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. But I, so I guess going back to your original question uh, of kids coming in with a single concussion and them or their parents worried about CT, I think we probably talked about this on Twitter. Like, I'm not sure how we fix that, right? You, you talk, there's no, you know, we're not living in a world where we have precision messaging, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's not, we're not doing Facebook ads only to the kids who've had a concussion, but don't have repetitive brain trauma exposure. You know, we've been trying to raise awareness of a disease that no one knew about and the NFL was lying about <laughs> for, for a long time. It's unfortunate that some kids think that way, but I, the, the good news is they are showing up to the office because they're concerned and, and they're running into good clinicians who tell them that your messaging is not entirely accurate. You are not at risk for this. You know, but I, it, it is, I mean, it, it is a very common Twitter complaint that these, my poor patients are worried. 
And I just, mm-hmm. I, I compare them to the kids who are dying of, <laughs> with, with CT and go, mm-hmm. I'll take the worried kids. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I, I take to the worried kids, but lives. also having yeah. two, two kids who are, have anxiety at home who have not played contact sports, the worried kids can be a big problem too. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, yeah. worrying in of itself is not that great for anybody to deal with that. I mean, no, it's, I mean, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. And, and, and we do think about it, you know, in all of our messaging now that that's been raised. But, you know, and again, we make the point over and over again to people when we talk about the brain bank and we talk about CT in the population. You know, there's a lot of false information about high rates of CT in the normal population. The real rate of CT in the normal population is definitely less than 2%, and almost every study less than 1%. Mm-hmm. And that's a population where just about everyone gets a concussion in their life. And so we constantly said to you, well, look, a concussion in the absence of other hits has never been seen in history to, to definitely create CT. There's a very small percentage of the population that's getting enough hits to be at risk of CT. But for those people, there's a lot of suffering. And a lot of those people had most of their exposure as kids. And that's what we try to keep reminding people. Sure. Well, Chris, it's been a great discussion and I want to finish up. We have a feature of our podcast. It's called the Pearl of the Podcast, where we ask our guests to give us some take home point that you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion today. So Chris, what would your Pearl of the Podcast be? Unfortunately, I'm going to have to cheat and give you two pearls. That's fine. That's fine. That happens frequently. <laughs> because in our world, there, there's, there's, there's two messages. It's kind of to that CT population, to that concussion population. The first pearl is that, you know, a healthy brain is a, a wonderful blessing and we shouldn't be doing things to put that at risk. We need to talk far more about prevention of both concussions and CT. And I think we need to be far more careful with our children about what we expose them to. My simple answer is please don't hit your kid in the head and don't let other people hit your kid in the head. And then the other part is for those of us who have been hit in the head too much or too hard. The reality is there is a lot of reason for hope. And as you said earlier, people do get better, especially when you find the right treatment and you stay a vigilant patient. There there really truly is, there's no doom and gloom. There's no cliff people go off of. Everyone with concussions eventually gets better. And I'm sitting here 18 years later, still getting slowly better. And then if we're talking CT, you know, don't focus on the early life deaths. Those are complex situations. There's a lot of people who have CT or who still have really great lives. And it's only at the end that we find out there was something wrong. If you've been hit in the head, still be hopeful. And if you need help and you need help finding that doctor is going to make you better, you know, reach out to the Concussion Legacy Foundation helpline. You just Google CLF helpline, you'll find us. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate the discussion today. It's someone who's helped to move our field forward in the area of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and also especially in light of this being Brain Injury Awareness Month. And so be sure to check out all of our episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. We love your feedback and we truly appreciate your five-star reviews. If you haven't done so already, we'd love to get your feedback and and rating because that helps our podcast to become more visible. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.